Thank our exhortation this evening will be brought to us by Brother Scott Huey. And he has a scriptural reading for us, which will be 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. So if we'll open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. And his title of his exhortation will be, Finish My Course. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. 7 to 8. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So with that reading now we'll give our attention to Brother Scott. brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the friends, um, my family and I are very grateful to be here this weekend with, with the brethren and uh, you know, our extended family, the Ecclesia. It's a, it's a great privilege to be here. We may not have many more of these from the looks of the, uh, you know, the world around us in the age we find ourselves in. So we need to be very thankful and take advantage of the time we have together. Is the volume enough? Move it up. Is that better? The Apostle Paul, you know, he really needs no introduction. There's not a lot I can say, I guess, to uh, introduce this subject. There's been hundreds of volumes written about the man. There has been many, many volumes and works written about his epistles that he wrote to the Ecclesias. Of course, we know the letters that he wrote were all spirit-directed, so the depths of them have not fully been plumbed. All the teaching that is in them has not really been realized, nor the wisdom in them fully appreciated yet. Now tonight when we meet the man, the first name we know him by will be Saul, which means the appointed. The name we're going to leave him by will be Paul the Little. And I think hopefully as we take a little bit of time to consider him tonight, we can come to understand why he desired to be known as Paul the Little and not Saul. And I think we will see that he desired to become this and what he became was for the sake of the truth. You know, first of all, uh, you know, Paul, there's, we'll just tonight try to talk, I guess, briefly and make some points, some, some important points about his character. We can't, you know, there's a, you could spend many, many classes on just the man and his example. But 
But, you know, one of the things that we can keep in mind, that he labored very, very hard. And this was just in our readings a couple of days ago, 1 Corinthians 15. Please turn with me to verses 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians 15. These are some interesting verses as regarding his name. For I am the least, or little, of the apostles, then I'm not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the ecclesia of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace, which was bestowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. So this word labor here, you know, it means an intensive toil, just an exhaustive labor just to wear one out. It's not just simple working. So, I mean, here in this verse right here, immediately we have some pretty pretty strong lessons. I mean, he, Paul, first of all, he can, considers himself unfit because of his past life, what he was. That, I mean, that gives us something to think about. You know, he, he, it's as if he says, why me? He made himself of no, a no account. He says, I am the least. And he recognized the divine favor that was shown him. But he also makes a very important point here that this favor, or this grace rather, which was favor, could fail. It could be bestowed in vain. So this incited him to work very, very hard, and he did, as we know. But probably the most important thing that we can take away from Paul, and if we don't remember anything else tonight from our consideration about this workman of God, there are these words, and there are several verses, and they have a common message, and they're worth turning up. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 4. We're already there. Turn back a few pages and look at 1 Corinthians 4. Verse 16. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. And turn over, back over to chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, a few pages, and look at verse 1. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, over to Philippians, chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have seen have us for an ensample. Then over in the next chapter, 4 and verse 9. And this is really a, a good verse. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. These words are all spirit-influenced. And give us the divine estimation of the man Paul. So whatever we learn about Paul or whatever we may think about Paul as we study him, we need to always remember this. You know, this last reference I think is especially powerful because what he says here is that in effect, 
He is a living example. He is an embodiment of you know, all the, the teaching and the doctrine that is contained in his epistles. Practical outworking of the truth that he taught. So, I guess the question is then for us, what brought Paul to the point where he could say these things? Which of us could, could say, be followers of me, even as I am of Christ Jesus? That's a pretty, you know, that's a pretty bold statement that he made. How, what brought Paul to this point where he could say that? You know, we just read, Brother Pat just read the reference there in 2 Timothy 4. And I'm going to turn back to it. You know, these, these words here in Timothy, these epistles to Timothy, these were the very, very last words Paul wrote. And I'm not going to reread those verses that he just read, but I think that they were very, these would have been very strong words of encouragement to his son Timothy in the faith. And if anybody could be in despair over their circumstances and just ready to give up, At this point, it would be the Apostle Paul, because here he is. He's in prison when he writes this. He's an older man. He knows his days are probably numbered. He doesn't really have a lot to look forward to at this point. Yet, what does he say? He gives Timothy these very encouraging words. You know, and to add to that, he had labored for 30 years, and apparently all these labors had gone by the wayside, because if we look back over at chapter 1, of 2 Timothy in verse 15. We read, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. So all this wearisome toil and labor seemingly had gone by the wayside. But we see that Paul was very, very determined. He was determined to overcome until the end. So I think as we consider him you know, here at the outset, we can't be, uh, cannot help but be impressed by his dedication to the Lord Jesus. You know, but what drove, these, what drove this man? Let's, let's look at that a little closer. Um, perhaps we're thinking, well, you know, Paul was an apostle. He was called of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he had the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's how he was able to over overcome and say these things. Well, let's look at a let's look at 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27. I think we'll see that that's not the case because Paul has these words to say. He says, "But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached unto others, I myself should be a castaway." And he wrote in another place over in Hebrews chapter 6. Let's look at this reference, and it's in verse 4. He writes, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world of the age to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. So therefore, I mean, it was possible for those with a 
with these spirit powers to fall away, or, or as Paul said, to be a castaway. And we know that uh, the apostle wrote uh, that this struggle that he had with his flesh was always with him. It was always in him. And he wrote in Romans 7.24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? So he had this problem in common with us all. He had this flesh in him that he was trying to overcome and subdue to keep his body under subjection so that he wouldn't be a castaway. So what Paul had become in his life where he could say, be ye followers of me, was something he had to work very hard to attain to. And it was something he developed through determination. As a matter of fact, we may, we may want to subtitle you know, the, the remarks tonight, Paul the Determined. Because I think that's what we'll see him as. You know, it was not something that he, he had been made or that had been handed to him. So what brought him to this point? Well, I think the simplest answer, in the simplest terms, it was his contact with Christ. And it started on his road to Damascus. You know, if we look back, if we look back in the record of Scripture, and we look at all the great heroes of faith and all the worthies, and you can go back to, you know, we can we can go back to Abraham or even before. Every one of them had a crisis in their life, at least one, so that they might, their faith might be tested and tried. So, this is one of Paul's crises, his first one, I guess, the right turning point, his conversion. Now, it's interesting, if we look over in the Acts, we might go over there and look, you know, if we look at kind of what's going on here, and we, in the context of it, we're reading through chapter 6 and chapter 7, um, we know that his conversion really kind of, it comes in connection with this wonderful defense of the truth made by Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Now, Stephen makes this wonderful defense in chapter 7, and it's just a wonderful chapter. There's very much in it to consider. Uh, And we don't really have Paul explicitly mentioned in these events that happen here in the latter verses of chapter 6. If we look down at those verses and you know, as Stephen is before the council here in chapter 7, we don't really have him explicitly mentioning these events, but I think that, you know, Saul was a chief Pharisee. He was a chief religious leader here in Jerusalem. And he, you know, most certainly would have been here to hear this. I think he heard Stephen's defense. So it's important, I think, for us to, to, th- when we're in, to talk about Saul and his conversion to understand the context and to get a really good grasp of you know, what transpires here regarding Saul and the influence that Stephen had on him. I think that the impact that Stephen had on Paul cannot be overstressed. You know, the closer I looked at Paul, the more I became convinced of this. I'm, you know, I'm sure here Saul listened very intently to Stephen's argument that he made. Um, you know, Stephen was an extraordinary disciple of the Lord. We don't, 
maybe talk about Stephen much, but look back in chapter 6 at verse 5 and what is said of Stephen. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. You know, the word there means complete, full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And look down at verse uh, 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And then in verse 10, you know, he, in verse 9, he disputes with some in the synagogue. And in verse 10 it says of him, And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So Stephen was a very powerful proponent for the truth. He was a very strong disciple. And so Paul, or Saul here, said and listened to Stephen. We remember the events. You know, Stephen was brought before the council on false charges of blasphemy, much like his Lord had been earlier. Of course, when he testified before the council, just like it says there in verse 10, of chapter 6, they could not resist his wisdom. They could not withstand his forceful argument that he put forth for the truth. And of course, this enraged them, and it resulted in Stephen's stoning. Of course, we know the story is that there was a twist of events here in these remarkable circumstances led in the conversion, or to the conversion, of one of the foremost Pharisees, and that was Saul. It was a very, you know, it was a, and you, you think about, it's not here, but you think about the ecclesia that was at Jerusalem. And this must have been a, a very trying day for Stephen's brethren. You know, first of all, it would have been encouraging to see, that, to see Stephen give this defense of the truth, but then it, you know, it resulted in a very tragic day for the truth. But it also um, it was a very important day for the truth. And it is here that we are introduced to the man Saul. Of course, chapter 8 opens with these words. And Saul was consenting unto his death. This word consenting is a very powerful word. One that when later... Saul would become Paul the Apostle, would give him great anguish as he heard it. Saul was consenting unto his death. The word means to think well of with others. To think well of with others. Not only to think in harmony with them, but to endorse what they had done. Or to think well of them for what they had done. It also means to take pleasure with others. This is what Saul had done. Weymouth translates the phrase very bluntly, and Saul fully approved of his murder. And that is really exactly what the verse means. You know, after Paul was converted to the truth, he never, ever forgave himself for this. Although God did. But Paul never forgot this incident and the dreadful things that he had done 
before coming into contact with Christ. We see Paul using this very word concerning this incident in Acts 22, verses 17 to 21, where we read, And it came to pass that when I was coming into Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. And I saw him saying unto me, Make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death, for I was with them and took pleasure in it, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Paul was never ever timid about confessing what he had done. He felt this very deeply throughout his life. Though Paul could never forget this terrible crime he had consented to, but I think in him we have a great and outstanding example of mercy and grace of our God. As we consider this incident about Paul, we can see that in this regard, in a way, he's very much like David. Because David was forgiven for the same type of crime. Paul found that through the power of the truth, together with the great mercy of God, he could find harmony and oneness with his creator. Paul could find, as he ultimately did, the right way to God. You know, later on, Paul would write this verse to the Romans. Very familiar verse to us, Romans 5, verse 8. He wrote, But God commendeth his love toward us, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now what do you think Paul was thinking when he wrote those words? In all probability, when he wrote those words, he was not only thinking about the brethren at Rome, but thinking primarily of himself and to the height of the wickedness that he had achieved. The account of him as Saul the persecutor shows him to be like a raging and ferocious animal because of the dreadful things that he did in the persecution of the Ecclesia and the brethren of Christ. You know, you think about it, after Paul had turned around, you know, all of this Paul had to overcome in his mind. You know, no doubt he considered himself as one of the greatest sinners for whom Christ had died. He not only took pleasure in the death of Stephen, but many others as well. The death of Stephen was apparently not an isolated incident. If we look at Acts 26, and we read in verses 9 and 10, it is written, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Now how many for sure that happened to, we don't know. But if we go back to Acts 
Let's go back to Acts 8 and look at and continue with Luke's words here in verse 1. You know, to me, when you look at this, it's, it's amazing. The, the turn of events in the hand of providence in the situation and taking Paul and turning him totally around is really amazing. I mean, we know the story, we're familiar with it, but if we really think about it and consider what happened here, um, it's, it's really amazing. Um, but note the phrase there in verse 8. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the ecclesia, which was at Jerusalem. This is a very important point, and it gives us a very interesting detail. It's amazing the detail that Luke provides us here in verse 1 about, about the events and all the turmoil that's going on in Jerusalem. It, Rotherham renders that phrase, moreover, there arose in that day. You know, it, it kind of sounds like a generalization of the time, but I think uh, that's not what it is. This is a very important phrase. I think the, the teaching is that with Stephen Stoning began this turmoil and tumult that continued. Stephen's murder produced this outpouring of frenzy of which Saul was apparently the ringleader against this ecclesia that was in Jerusalem. Persecution from the Jews against the disciples and the apostles. It was as if Stephen's death was the start of a major violent riot. Stephen's death and the ensuing persecution of the ecclesia were to have great repercussions not only in Jerusalem, but throughout the then-known world. You know, really, this is an event that can't be, the importance of it really can't be overstressed because really it turned the whole events in the whole world, then-known world. And really, Saul, who became Paul, was at the very center of it. The Jews, you know, with whom Saul was in company, had become so bitter at the success of the apostles uh, that this religion that they were teaching was very anti-Judaistic. It was very against the law in their view. And they were determined to stamp it out. They wanted to totally uh, stamp it out. Of course, we know that was not to happen. But this work and this persecution against the believers did work to scatter them, which I think, again, is the hand of providence in it. If we look over at Acts 11 and verse 19, it reads... Now when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Now this is a, an important verse. Phoenice was on the south side of Crete, so it was pretty far out to the west in the Mediterranean. Uh, Cyprus, we know also is to the west. Antioch would have been to the north in, in Syria. So this scattering and this turmoil that started with Stephen Stoning, you know, that spread these saints into a pretty wide area. But uh, note in this verse we see preaching but unto the Jews only. Note that fact there. This is an important point. So this is what is happening when we're introduced to Saul. Luke also says um, here that there was a great persecution against the ecclesia. This word persecution is also noteworthy here. It means to put to flight, 
to drive away, hence a violent pursuit. Now, this is not really what Saul wanted. Saul wanted to stamp this religion out. He wanted to get rid of these people. He didn't want to scatter them. He wanted to get rid of this uh, religion once and for all. But instead, he drove them away from Jerusalem, pursued them, scattered them. And uh, it's, it's very ironical, but later on, this same word here is used, and we won't look at these references right now, in 2 Corinthians 12:10. And in 2 Timothy 3.11, this same word is used by Paul of his persecutions. So the pursuer became the pursued. The persecutor became the persecuted later on. He, and this word is not, is not a normal word. It's, it's, a, it's a fairly uncommon word. So with these brethren in Jerusalem, we know that these persecutions for this ecclesia were, was a trial and it was... It would uh, test their faith and to uh, try them. Of course, this ecclesia that was persecuted, this was the ecclesia. This was the beginnings of the ecclesia. This was the first ecclesia in Christ. Uh, This is where the ecclesia was founded. And this ecclesia felt the full brunt of this of these maddened Jews. And we need to remember from the earlier chapters in Acts, this was a large number of believers. I mean, it says in uh, Acts 2.41, there were 3,000 added after Peter's speech on Pentecost. And then after that, we read it, it says that, that, that they added daily to the ecclesia, such as should be saved. This was not a small, small, a small number of believers. It was in the thousands that were suffering. So the brethren in this Jerusalem of Ecclesia were undergoing this. Now many of these believers probably would have lived outside the city walls and would have been pursued by their persecutors wherever they lived. And it's very interesting uh, that up until this time, neither the apostles nor the disciples had shown any tendency to extend their preaching beyond Jerusalem. I mean, this might seem strange, but this is what we find up until this point. Let's look at a verse back in Acts 1, verse 8. I think that it has a bearing on what we're talking about here. It's a, it's a prophecy or instruction from the Lord that he had given just prior to his ascension, or just at the point of his ascension. Acts 1, 8 reads, But you shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem. Now that had already been done. In all Judea, that was about to be done with what's happening here. And in Samaria, that was also about to be done. And to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, that was going to follow. And we know who's going to accomplish that. This was the instruction that the Lord had given. And now we see that through God's hand in the affairs here and through providence, through persecution, through tribulation against the ecclesia, um, this begins to be fulfilled. Back over in Acts 8 again, verse 1. We're not out of verse 1 yet. But note what it says there at at the close of the last phrase of this verse. And they were scattered, or they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea 
in Samaria except the apostles. So when we read these words of Luke, I mean, we can see how the preaching began in these areas. It began to, be, to move out of Jerusalem, perhaps in fulfillment of Acts 1a here. Of those who did not leave, we know that many were seized and thrown into prison from that reference over in chapter 26. I think that there's also a very important detail in this verse here. It's incredible the detail that's in this one verse that Luke gives us. Look at the very last phrase. Except the apostles. Now isn't it remarkable that we have this little bit of detail from Luke. So we have this particular note that the apostles stayed behind. Now think about that a minute. I mean, I believe this is a very magnificent point in several ways. Because of all the believers in Jerusalem, if you were Saul and you wanted to stamp out this new religion, who would be the first ones you would go to and throw in jail? It would be the ringleaders, wouldn't it? It would be the apostles. The, the, the apostles themselves would be under the most risk. And yet they stayed. They did not leave. Now what is that? but a remarkable example of faith and courage on the part of the apostles. So in, in Acts 8.1 here, we have a remarkably, remarkable example of faith and courage in three words, except the apostles. So here they refused to be intimidated. They refused to flee in terror. Um, in showing this faith, the Father watched over them and preserved them. We have no record of them being imprisoned at this time. We know that God made a way for them to escape somehow. That their leadership was needed in that early ecclesia. Their example and so forth. They remained faithful under these pressures. Of course, we know back in Acts 8.1 it said 1.8. It said that this, that, that they would be witnesses unto Christ unto the uttermost parts of the earth. The Lord stated that the apostles would be a witness unto him, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, how was this preaching and this witness to be carried out? We know the answer. It was to be Saul. First, Saul would have to be changed, wouldn't he? He would have to come into contact with Christ. And, you know, all this exercise was just, to, I think, to see all that was going on here. I mean, we read the narrative and maybe we don't think about, you know, how that there was a great trial and tribulation that the Jerusalem Ecclesia suffered, but God's hand was in all for the ultimate good. I mean, his providential care was overall. And we can see, you know, the wisdom in it. Of course, Paul, in, in Paul's instigation of this persecution, or apparent instigation, would alter the course of the truth. And really of the whole world at that time. So we can begin to see how God shaped this man, Paul, for the work he had to do even before he converted him. The circumstances of Paul's encounter with the Lord on the road to Damascus and the circumstances of his conversion to the truth 
And I think ultimately his recollection, I mean, this is probably the most important point, his recollection of himself at the height of his wickedness specially prepared him for the work. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let's go ahead and look at chapter 9. and just We need to read the verses about his conversion. We'll start at verse 3. As he, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And just a second, just a comment here. Isn't it interesting, the Lord's words to Saul, very non-threatening, in a very meek way, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And compare that to what Saul had been doing. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And note verse 6, Saul's reaction. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? So, his reaction here is very interesting. No debate, just capitulation. Maybe he was in fear for the what he was seeing. He was definitely in fear. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth. So Saul, this man of, this man of zeal and energy driven to chase the Ecclesia to Damascus, is brought crashing down to the earth. He's laid prostrate in the earth after seeing this vision and seeing his Lord. He saw the Lord. He picks himself up, so he's, he's brought down and humbled. And it's a very important point here that it says, and he arose from the earth. And when his eyes were opened, Now, his eyes were opened in more ways than one. He saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And it's a wonderful name for the man that would lead Saul by the hand, whom Yahweh hath graciously given. That's what his name means, Ananias. So the truth came to Saul in a, in a fashion with this man coming to him, whom Yahweh hath graciously given. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So here we have it. Paul's great crisis. He was humbled. His zeals and his energies were redirected. He was a very zealous man for what he had been doing, but he was misdirected. So now he is redirected to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just a couple of points on his qualifications. And when we think about Paul, um, you know, we think about how qualified the man was for the work he had been called to do. We know that he was a freeborn Roman citizen. He had impeccable credentials as to his Jewishness. He had strict training in the law as a Jew under Gamaliel. He would have known the scriptures very well. He probably had a great amount of the scriptures memorized. He was also evidently familiar with profane literature as he quoted Greek poets. He was a very uh, enthusiastical and powerful orator. Um, His preaching serves as a model for all brethren who would teach the truth. You know, a couple of great examples are in Acts 13. Uh, verses 16 to 41 and Acts 17 where he was at Athens. He was an outstanding writer. His language is plain and simple yet detailed and profound. Of course we know his his writings were spirit directed. However, his power as a writer is unmistakable. Another thing that's important is, is that his bodily size in appearance, was called contemptible. So apparently he was a powerful speaker, but he was not much to look at. I think this is important because he would have not been able to glory in the flesh. And as you know, you know, our society places a lot of value on a big, tall, strong man that gets up and speaks or whatever. I mean, you see uh, these type of people put into leadership because of how they look. Well, that wouldn't have been. Paul, but we know he was a giant in his labors for Christ, but he would not have been able to glory in physical appearance. He had great strength of character. He was a leader and took the lead in all situations. And we see that in these persecutions, he was a leader. He was very motivated. I think he ran the show, apparently. Well, you know, later on when he's on the boat that was shipwrecked, he was a natural leader there, was he not? But the 300 or so that were on that boat, he took the charge there. So Saul's qualifications, and that's not a complete list. I mean, he was, a, he was a, well, they were stellar. There was no doubt he was very qualified for the work before him. But there's many who were qualified that have failed. What made Paul unique? And how does all this tie into finishing the course? Let's let's talk a minute about Paul's burden. Can we imagine the thoughts that Paul had of those whom he had persecuted unto death? After he had uh, become a servant of Christ and began his labors, in establishing ecclesias, as he was involved in his work of ministry, can we imagine how often 
when he would sit at night or whenever, that his mind would run back to his former self and the crimes he had committed. This must have given him great anguish. I think if we consider the circumstances of Paul, of what he was and what he had become, he was very uniquely suited for the work in forming and shepherding the early ecclesias. But along with his qualifications, but along with all those qualifications we mentioned, you know, Yahweh required a man of great determination. A determination to overcome all trials and to provide instruction, not only in word, but in deed. Now we can turn to, we won't read them right now, but over in 2 Corinthians 11, beginning at verse 23, we have a catalog of all the sufferings that Paul went through, all the trials and the great troubles he endured, and you're familiar with those verses. We know that it would have taken a very determined man to not just say, you know, I've had enough, I'm giving up, I'm going back home. We know Paul never did that. What made Paul so determined to be a living example of the truth? Well, I think, I mean, I'm sure it was a combination of things. It was the right thing for him to do, obviously, as a servant of Christ, to overcome to the end. It was the right thing to do. But one thing comes to the fore, and that is, I believe it was Paul's burden. It was this burden that he always had with him in his mind of those he had persecuted, the saints that had died at his hand. Paul not only had to live with this, but now, having come to the truth, he had this realization. He knew in his mind that he must meet all them in the resurrection. His mind must have gone to Stephen many times where it all started. I can imagine him reliving Stephen's defense. Paul ever retained the experience of meeting Stephen and constantly to the end of his life contemplated with horror his own participation in the tragic death of that faithful disciple. Now in, in Acts 7 verse 60, let me read you this verse. This is Stephen's dying prayer. He says, And he kneeled down and he cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell, he fell asleep. Now, compare this with 2 Timothy 4 and verse 16. These are Paul's last words, or some of his last words, written words. At my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge. Did perhaps... Paul have Stephen on his mind when he wrote this to Timothy. The presence of these things in his mind made him a very determined man for the things of the truth. And in this determination is where he becomes a great example for us, for all who are in Christ. So powerful. Now think about this. So powerful was this determination in, in Paul. So much so, he would not fail. He would not countenance failure. He would never even think of failure. He would not think of quitting. He was determined to finish the course. 
successfully. Because Paul knew that at the judgment seat of Christ, when he would see those whom he persecuted unto death, when he would meet Stephen and the others, Stephen would come to know a Paul. He would see and he would meet a Paul that overcame. And that they would know, Stephen would know, and the others, that they had not died in vain. You know, there's a wonderful passage that has application here, and it's in Psalm 37. And I want to read two verses, verse 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by Yahweh, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, think about Saul's crisis, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. This is what Yahweh did for Paul. Stephen will realize, God willing, that his death brought spiritual life to the greatest of his opponents, the young man Saul. Stephen. Stephanos. His name means a crown. It was the crown that was presented to the victor in the Olympic Games or in other sporting competition. It was usually woven as a garland from oak leaves. To us, the symbology points forward toward the joy, the victory, and the glory of the resurrection to immortality. We will also remember that it is used to symbolize the suffering which must precede the glory. But we know this from John 19 and verse 2 when the Roman soldiers platted a crown of thorns and jammed it down to the head of our Lord and only added agony to his suffering he was already undergoing. But we know that this suffering, in this suffering, it symbolized his victory over sin. Now Paul refers to this Stephanos very beautifully in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. Let's turn, let's turn to that one for a moment together. Look at this one together. 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 25. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, Stephanos, but we an incorruptible. This symbol of the crown as the reward to the victor would be well known to Paul's readers, Stephanos. This is, a fig- you know, this is a figure that he refers to quite a few times in his writings. It kind of is a theme, almost, that runs through. If we look back at chapter 9 of this same 1 Corinthians here, in verse 24, we read, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize of the Stephanos? So run that you may obtain. Then over to Galatians chapter 2. Let's look at this verse. Galatians 2, verse 1. Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them 
which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. And then over in chapter 5, turn over a couple pages, verse 7. You did run well. Who did hinder you that you should not obey the truth? And then over in Philippians 2, verse 16. Philippians 2, verse 16. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And then finally, in Hebrews 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12.1 Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know, we can't help wonder in our minds why Paul used this figure so frequently. Why he kept using this uh, figure of the race and, and the running of the race and the Stephanos. Did his mind go back to Stephen? The Stephanos he knew? Was this the great motivation in his life to finish the course? Perhaps we can learn personally from the Apostle's example of determination. Brethren, are we determined to finish the course? Do we have a spiritual mentor, a loved one, Maybe somebody who taught us the truth. Maybe someone who is now sleeping in Christ, whom we long to see in the resurrection. You know, we need to think about that. Will the reunion be one of disappointment and shame? Or will it be with great joy? To whom we can say to those we have missed, I have finished the course. You know, throughout the scripture, there are many accounts of men and women who could be called successful. Paul is one of these. They ordered their life and their conduct so that they have been accepted and are of great worth in the eyes of God. If you look at these individuals in each, and I've already mentioned this, in each of these individuals, there occurred a great crisis in their lives. One of Paul's came on the way to Damascus. And we know after that, the rest of his life, he had to face his former self. The spirit and the attitude manifested on these occasions typified and was later seen in the many smaller actions in his life. It was his determination to do the will of God. Now, Paul's former friends certainly did not consider him successful. I'm certain his former associates counted him as a fool. He gave up a position of success, worldly success, and probably a seat on the Sanhedrin to follow a sect of people who were openly condemned by all and who at one time even forsook Paul. You know, it's really incredible, but, but often the most successful men and women were esteemed failures even by those around them who should have known better. You know, we, we mentioned that verse where 
you know, the, the ecclesia that was contemporary with Paul said his bodily presence was weak and contemptible. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12:15. We're going to wrap up these remarks. And there's, a, there's a bar, another verse here that demonstrates this point. Second Corinthians twelve fifteen, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Faith must be tried if it is to be brought forth to perfection. When the approved are all made manifest. It will be found that only one among the countless throng will not have sinned. But not one will be there who has not been tried. Paul made the point that it is through much tribulation that an entrance will be obtained into the kingdom of God. The word signifies pressure. Pressures are brought to bear upon us to test us. To bring out the strong points of our character. They provide us with the opportunity of demonstrating our unswerving loyalty to Yahweh. We learn that the Lord chastens those whom he loveth. From this we learn that trials are not evidence that Yahweh has deserted us, but the very reverse. They show us that he is not indifferent to us. Now I want to close with a passage in Acts 20. It's a very tender set of verses that Paul spoke to the brethren of Ephesus as he was departing. And he knew he wouldn't see him again. So it's a very poignant moment, a sad moment. But I think that in these verses, as we read through them, this, we, when we read them and we think about the man, Paul, I mean, these verses are really the epitome of the man, Paul the Determined, beginning at verse 17 through verse 24. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the ecclesia. And when they were come to him, he said unto them, You know from the first day that I came into Asia, after what manner I have been with you all seasons, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, and with many tears and temptations which befell me by the lying and weight of the Jews. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And now... Behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Spirit witnesseth in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions abide me. But none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Thank you for your attention.